Hey there, and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Hunter Cates. We're two Midwestern movie buffs here to manipulate and mold your mind with our mellifluous voices. On today's show, we're reviewing the 2014 Sundance Grand Jury Prize winning documentary, Rich Hill. Then in special features, we will dock your socks off with a discussion on documentaries. And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Uh, so this week, Chris, I would think it's pretty safe to assume that the pop culture discussion, the air was completely torn out by two trailers, one in particular. So we'll start with the one that came out first, which was Star Wars The Force Awakens. To set the stage a little bit for this... On Thursday, I was going to of go... Of last week. Of last week, excuse me. Wink, yes, by wink. The, yes. So on Thursday, during the Star Wars celebration when they revealed this trailer, I was going to go to the gym, and then I remembered, oh wait, there's a live panel. So I spent my lunch watching the Star Wars panel, and then uh, Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill came out, and they looked really... They, they looked like I mean, exactly and so i this was it was getting a little uncomfortable peter mayhew who played chewbacca came out in a cane so anyway i i i turned it off and then came back and watched the trailer whenever it was finally revealed i was absolutely uh astounded i really enjoyed it and i'm curious to hear what you think and but before you do i would like to forewarn you that you were liable to receive death threats Probably from your co-host. Yeah. Given sort of the way things have gone between um, basically from Ryan Johnson being announced forward, I've been growing in my uh, my optimism of the new Star Wars franchise. Uh, The first teaser trailer, there's things I could nitpick. Sure. But I was pretty excited. And then this comes out. Hmm. And. I guess it really goes back to my primary problem that I've had since, you know, the whole announcement that J.J. Abrams is going to uh, continue the Star Wars saga and bring back Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford, all these original characters. And I think we've talked about this on the show before, if not on the show, at least in person in, you know, I think the Star Wars universe is such a vast universe, even even if you continue the story that you get from four, five, and six. Let's mm-hmm. not address the prequels at all. Yes. But four, five, and six, I think you could still do that, introduce new characters that, you know, their basically lives trajectory, their their journey is set up by the fall of the Empire. And not have I will, any of that connection. Yeah, I will semi agree with you because as I understand it, what they want to do is have the have the right. so called Star Wars Trinity Trinity introduce a new set of characters. My not to sound like a lost apologist here because that's what they always say, but my thinking is is as much as I enjoy the universe, my big thing are these characters, mm-hmm. and so even if it's just finding out what happened to them, and, and you ha- know if if they're just small little cameo pieces, I'll be fine. But I'm not sure that's what this one's going to be. I think not from, the from, first one. I don't yeah, think, from yeah. my understanding, they're going to give them the send off they deserve. And that send off is not to, you know, put them in front and center for us to say, oh, Harrison Ford, you've got an old Mark Hamill. You've gotten a little paunchy, weird, as I yeah. saw on the Star Wars panel. But let me just ask you this at the very end. Chewie, we're home. Did that do anything for you? No. Did that send the force up your up your leg? It really didn't. Um, Did did I have this discussion with you about um, like what is what is the reverse of that shot of uh, 
him saying Chewie were home? No. What do you what do you think they're looking at there? I think that they're entering the Millennium Falcon for the first time in however long. And so he's saying we're home mm, in the Millennium okay. Falcon. That's probably true. Here's what I hope it is. I hope they've come back to Chewbacca's home and Lumpy is sitting there and he's a he is the millennial Wookiee. Yes. He's he's eating eating potato chips. He's high and done he's just nothing a, with his he's life. He's done nothing with his life. And because there's a little bit of like, uh, does Chewbacca have his crossbow? Somebody's got a weapon. Yes, he's got something. Um, yeah. He's armed. Like maybe he's about to whip ass on on Lumpy for being such a disappointment. Well, and you know, that would, that would, that's my hope. I don't think that's what it is, but that would it's, be an improvement yeah. on. I, I, I would love to see that. The only, th- uh, once again, I was just absolutely thrilled by it because to me, this trailer felt like the original trilogy. Like you said, not acknowledge the prequels. Those, those didn't, it didn't feel like it was part of it. It just felt like a cash grab the whole time. Mm-hmm. This actually feels like a legitimate uh, continuation or in, involvement in the story. Yeah. And, you know, I'm still like, whether I like this first one or not, The Force Awakens or not, I'm still going to see the next one because it's got Ryan Johnson. Like, I've been a huge Ryan Johnson fan since Brick, since his very first film. I mean, I saw that movie three times in the theater. Well, then is this an apprehension towards J.J.? It's an apprehension towards both J.J. Abrams and the use of the original characters. Mm-hmm. It's both of those combined because I don't think Abrams is a terrible director, but he's not, you know, he's not solid for me. To me, as long as I think he will be responsible enough to try and direct this as uh, to try and just advance the story, not J.J. Abrams it up. And by that, I mean, make it overly long and have a ridiculous twist. By J.J. Abrams it up, you mean try to Spielberg it up? Or have a smoke monster come. <laughs> well, and maybe the smoke monster is coming from Lumpy's uh, uh, yeah, pot that, that he's that, smoking. That's probably, and that's what the smoke monster yeah, is. They're going to tie it all together. It's once again, the single cinematic universe. Okay. It's going gonna, it's gonna to yes. pull Lost into. Oh, yeah, exactly. Into, into, Star, into Star Wars. Wars. OK, speaking of single cinematic universe, let's talk about the other big trailer coming from the DC cinematic universe. This is, of course, Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice, which. It leaked on Thursday and I believe premiered on Friday. What did you feel about this trailer? Um, equal disappointment to the Star Wars. Yeah, probably. Actually, no. Probably. Well, hard to say. Like, I feel I'm less optimistic about uh, Batman v Superman because oh, clearly, me. clearly, it's a court case. <laughs> yes, it's not only is it a court case, but I guess versus just that that sounds cheap. But v, <laughs> but v, yeah. Um, you know, I have I have lower expectations for it because it's Zack Snyder, because I actually saw the man of steel. Um, you know, there's some bad things, you know, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with, with Ben Affleck. Um, the one line that he gets here or a couple of lines that he gets here, uh, it's a robotic voice. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's total Zack Snyder and saying like, okay, well, Christian Bale really pushed it to the limit on the gravelly Batman. How do we make this even more intense? Uh, make him kind of a robot. Yeah. Turn him into yes. bat, bat bot. Yes. Um, so it's, you know, it's more, it's more Zack Snyder than anything that, that makes me really, because I, I'll be honest, I love the old dark Knight returns bat suit. Mm-hmm. Um, that looks badass to me. Like I love kind of the, the chunky nubby eared bat suit. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's not, and it's unlike anything we've ever seen, uh, Batman wear, mm-hmm. uh, in, you know, since 1989, my feeling on this trailer is the same as my feeling about this picture in general. Is I think DC has completely missed the mark on trying to make these just yeah. frighteningly dark, like scarily dark, because 
Superman isn't dark. Wonder Woman isn't dark. Aquaman isn't well, dark. <laughs> and it, and here's the thing is, if everybody's dark, then the significance of Batman's darkness and his universe's dark, darkness mm-hmm. is eliminated. Whenever you make everything so so depressingly dismal, yeah. well, who wants to see that? Well, how do you feel about... Like, the, the thing that really irked me about... And, I mean, I knew it was coming, I guess, because because of the way Man of Steel, you know, set up where things were going... But the whole like, I mean, it, it, it's basically the exact same thing as Star Trek Into Darkness, the role reversal of, you know, you had Kirk and Spock having the role reversal from Wrath of Khan there. You have essentially Superman and Batman having the role reversal of The Dark Knight Returns here in that, you know, Dark Knight Returns, it's spoilers, I suppose, Um it's it's not it's not Reagan, but it's or is it really Ronald Reagan? Yes, you, it was. Well, okay. they never called him out. But yeah, it yeah. Was. yeah, Ronald Reagan is sending in Superman to contain Batman because Batman, you know, he he had hung up the cow in the cape and but then, you know, some events throw him back into uh, crime fighting and he's getting out of control. And so they they've reversed that where it's like, oh, you know, Superman killed a lot of people and destroyed some cities. Batman, go wrangle. Well, and that in and of itself is not consistent with the characters. At least the Dark Knight Returns, that's how those characters would have behaved. This is it's this, that's not Superman. That's not Batman. No. And and you know, Zack Snyder already made the, you know, subverting Superman movie and it was called The Watchmen. Right. I mean, so I don't know. Like I just I I, I want him to go away. Like I, Zack Snyder or these movies? Zack Snyder, really. Like I, because I would, I would love to like them. I would, I would love to like to to love a comic book franchise. Um, you know, and, and like we've discussed before, like I'm pretty much on the fence about Marvel. It's sort of it's a movie to movie thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm not. I don't absolutely hate them, but I'm not all in. Um, I loved Nolan's micro universe, if you will, for the most part. Like, I, I, I don't think he sticks a landing and that's not a discussion for now. But uh, what they're trying to do now in just like basically attempting to copy Marvel's success, I don't. Yeah, think. copy its success, but deliberately not follow the formula to their own detriment, as opposed to saying, OK, we're going to do each individual characters. We're going to just throw them together. I would say. That and this is this is me. I would say that the Star Wars trailer gets me really, really pumped for it. Um, I think WB suffered the misfortune of coming right after the Star Wars trailer because the reaction to Star Wars was, "Oh my God, I'm going to cry," whereas the reaction to Batman versus V Superman, excuse me, was more meh. It was some people like me said meh, and then other people said, "Oh my God, that's so badass! Batman and Superman fighting," but that's not yeah, and, that's and, not passion. I I like the idea of Batman and Superman. I think it's an interesting like because I don't I don't get how you relate to Superman. Um, And so to try to actually bring him to a human level, I think that's the most compelling thing you can do with the character. But I don't trust Zack Snyder to do that. Well, we shall see, Chris, in the next 365 days. But one picture that you can check out right now is the, as you said, the 2014 Sundance winning Rich Hill, which we're getting ready to discuss next. So stay tuned. People walk past us with their nose 50 miles in the air, acting like they're better than us. And I I don't fall for that. We're not trash. We're good people. Right now, my mom's in prison. No, I don't have a girlfriend yet. Big capital letters. Love ya. From Harley. 
Most important thing for you is your education. Most important thing for me is my family. That's all I need. My dad left when I was six. Just walked out. Didn't even say bye. I know I wouldn't be able to live without my parents. I really do love my mom and my dad and my sister. In a time when the appeal of mainstream documentaries often trends towards big themes like true crime or celebrity superstar documentarians who place themselves in nearly every frame, Rich Hill is intimate and devoid of sensationalism. Co-directors and cousins, Tracy Droz Tragos and Andrew Droz Palermo, return to the hometown of their parents, the titular Rich Hill. And with this impoverished former Midwestern mining town as the backdrop, they chronicled the lives of three boys on the cusp of adolescence. I'm surely not the first to draw this comparison, but with the candid narrative and delicate presentation, Rich Hill feels a lot like a true-life companion piece to another film from last year, Richard Linklater's Boyhood. And while the documentary only captures a single year in the lives of the boys Andrew, Harley, and Apache, it may pack even more humanity in its brisk 90-minute runtime than Linklater's 12-year epic did in nearly three hours. Through the simple virtue of listening, Tragos and Palermo are able to offer up a truly immersive and compassionate story without a hint of manipulation or condescension. But that's just my take on the film. In the past, you've mentioned that you don't typically seek out documentaries that are not squarely in your realm of interest. But now that you've seen Rich Hill, because I forced you to watch it for this week's review, are you as enamored with it as I am? Or am I going to be flying solo, singing its praises? Well, I'm glad you said flying solo, Chris, because to be completely honest with you, I just want to continue talking about Star Wars. (laughs) However, because because you are forcing me... I, talking I, am using, about, I am using the force. Uh, yes, uh, you're using the force. After using the force to make me watch this, you're now using the force to make me talk about it. Mm-hmm. So I, we will have to save Star Wars discussion for another day, unfortunately. However, this story, which took place in a small mining town in a galaxy far, far away, I actually, I don't think I'm going to be as enamored with it as you clearly were. What I like about it is also what I think impacted it narratively from not truly engaging me. It is apolitical, and I mm-hmm. admire that. Mm-hmm. It is simply a, it is simply following these guys, it is watching them. It is a documentary in the truest sense of the word. However, because there's no person, there's no narrative, there's no person involving themselves in this. They're not working towards anything, say like a hoop dreams. Yeah, and also there's no explanation for why this situation is the way it is. Say like a a Crips versus Blood, which is another great documentary on Netflix. It's merely just watching these guys. It was difficult for me to become too terribly engaged with it because, again, it's just watching these guys. So you almost have to converse after the fact to get to get a whole lot out of it. And that was the point of the picture. So while I admire it for not feeding us the filmmakers' opinions, ironically, I kind of found like that was the thing I was missing. Really? Because, yeah, exactly. Normally when I would were to watch something like this and someone were to start, you know, feeding me their, their belief system, that would make me uncomfortable and probably just not enjoy it, I would think. Mm-hmm. But that gives me something to engage with. That gives me something to, quote, argue against, even if I'm, you know, just right, not going right. to argue against the TV. But as such, since we we're really just watching the situation, I didn't, I, it's not something I'm going to revisit and it's not going to really affect my 
worldview all that much. Interesting. So, I mean, was it a matter of, because for me, I mean, it honestly, for me, it was very immersive from the start. Mm-hmm. Um, just, I mean, a, a big part of that, I think, is the technique of it. The the silence of the creator. Um, it, and I think part of that is, you know, in a time where we have so many documentarians, like, you know, you have a Michael Moore who's narrating and putting himself inside it and essentially and making doing, a movie about himself. Yeah. yeah in, and, and I mean, he's been doing that for decades. Well, now, and that's but, that's the thing is maybe I'm just a fan of sensationalism. Maybe this doesn't speak well of me is even though I, if I don't particularly agree or even like Michael Moore, I'll watch every one of his documentaries and I'll be entertained by every one of his documentaries. This film is the the conceit of it is almost identical to Roger and me. Mm-hmm. which was his big coming out movie, wherever he goes back to his hometown that has fallen victim to an industry leaving. And then he begins to do his Michael Moore I thing. Think, I think that's a little unfair, though, to, to this film in just that I don't think they're so much trying to, you know, there there's not something at the end that's that's like, let's all rally together. And yeah, there's no and, moral and, pronouncements and make, you know, Rich Hill's. Uh, Main Street vibrant again, you know, or, it's, or it's go not, bust in on the mining company that left. Yeah, it's, and it's, say it's, what's your problem? It's more like for for me, it's all about the humanity. It's all about what you have on display with these three boys, and you know, I I really love the way that you you're following along with them, and it felt like they they did a great job with just about the time that I would think. Hey, we haven't seen Harley in a while. Mm-hmm. What what's happened with him? Then we're we're back to back to him. They they had a really good pace as far as the way that they um they jump between them because these are not three stories that intertwine. Like there's it's not you know never gets to a point where it's like oh hey they're all they're all best friends or they all meet up together or what you know and they, they're not all they're, working they're towards the same goal yeah no they're not there there are these independent tendrils. And, you know, they kind of it's it's just a snapshot. Um, But I was able to I I think kind of the difference between your um, perception or your your reception of it and mine is uh, I I was able like I I was pulled in pretty instantly. And and so that engagement from the start allowed me to, you know, want to continue, you know, I, I was able to kind of feel enough going through without the narration. And then and, and to that point, maybe I am just, I, I, it's, it's not well, news. I'm lacking. I'm cold. I have no soul. Yeah, and so well, you, I, you I, don't, required... I don't think it's that. I think it's more, it's just maybe, maybe it's not your cup of tea. And, um, and, and so that, and like I said, maybe it's just sensationalism. I'll, I'll, I'll review this and this isn't the way you should do it, but I'll review this by comparing it to two other things that I enjoyed, which isn't to say I didn't enjoy Rich Hill. It just wasn't my cup of tea. Like you said, mm-hmm. hoop dreams, which I believe came out in the early nineties. I, and I think it takes place in New York. No, Chicago. Uh, Chicago? Okay. Yeah. Chicago. Steve, anyway, Steve James, man, he's okay. a Chicago director. See, and then this just goes back to you being more of a, a fluent, excuse me, in uh, uh document and documentarians. But anyway, it's in Chicago. It's a poor neighborhood, but we're following these people as they're attempting to achieve their uh, epimenius hoop yeah, dreams. For, for those who haven't seen Hoop Dreams, it's a great. I mean, it's it's long, but it's amazing. It follows these two kids over four years. Basically, joins them when they're freshmen in, in high school. They're both, uh, you know, from struggling backgrounds, um, but they they've both been given scholarships to these. 
uh, schools that are known for these private schools that are known for basically developing basketball. Right. And so they're in the only way out of their impoverished situation is to become basketball stars from from that. I mean, and you got to also think this is this is like early 90s. This is Michael Jordan central. This is so. And so that played the culture of basketball played into this. This movie, Rich Hill. And because it didn't exist, this didn't have that narrative arc Mm -hmm. because they weren't really working towards anything. This is, you know, even more depressing, perhaps, is they it's almost like they had no escape. And so escape wasn't even part of their their mentality of their personal life narrative as it was in Hoop Dreams. But, But that's that's sort of the thing that I found so powerful about it was particularly Andrew, the boy who. He, he, I think he might actually start out the film. He might be the first one that we meet, but he, he talks about early on about, uh, well, we used to live in Rich Hill and we moved here. Like he names off at least half a dozen places that they, that they've moved. And his story I found just profoundly like, I don't know, like it just decimated me. Um, in the sort of echoes between him and his father, Mm -hmm. um, you know, his his father um, actually very like another very kind of poetic thing, like his father plays old Hank Williams songs like he's a Hank Williams impersonator and um, uh, or impersonator might not be. You know, he, he does Hank Williams cover songs um, and he his father is always um, optimistic, but optimistic in in like pie in the sky, almost sort of. Uh, sort of way, which you don't realize to begin with. And so like, as the movie goes on and you begin to see, like he talks about like, Oh, I'm going to get a big job coming in. And then, you know, we're going to, I like to once a year, just take the kids to, you know, Walmart or whatever and tell them to buy $800 worth of stuff, each of them. And so they get, you know, they get all the stuff they want. And you know, when that doesn't happen, it's so like when you realize finally that like, okay, they're not going to get a break. It, it hurts so much. Um, and so that was the that was the thing for me. It wasn't that it was narrative, really. It was just humanity on display. I keep using that that mm-hmm. word, but that's the the best word that I can think to uh, to describe it. I mean, and then you've got then Andrew, like throughout the the film, uh, kind of has uh, these discussions with there. This is one of the things that I love is the the way that the directors don't insert themselves at all. Like these kids will be talking to them, but it's just giving them their thoughts. It's not a, it's not really a conversation as much as just like they're telling them their feelings and thoughts and ideas. And, you know, these are kids that no one is really going to in general care, perhaps, you know, like for, for these people to come in and, and say, Hey, we want to, we want to follow you. We want to learn about you. I'm sure that that alone was a powerful thing. So Andrew talks about basically he has, you know, a a religious faith in like whatever happens is going to happen for a reason. And I know, you know, things are bad now, but I know uh, they're going to get better. There's that line that he has about, you know, I've I've never had God answer my prayer or something, but I'm sure it's just there's so many people that he's busy. I praise God. I worship him. pray to him every night. Nothing's came, but that ain't gonna stop me. This is what goes through my mind. 
God has to be busy with everyone else. Eventually, he won't come into my life. I hope it happens. It's gonna break my heart if it don't. And, you know, something like that, that's really, like, to see that exact sort of person in his father. And these are, you know, these are good salt of the earth people um, who just, you know, they are, they come from a place where there aren't many options economically to, um, to get out. Well, okay. Economic options to get out. Let's talk about this then, because you mentioned at the start of your uh, introduction that a mining company had left Rich Uh Hill. I didn't know that. And the reason I didn't know it is because it's not mentioned in the documentary. If it were to, if it were to mention that a mining company left, in your opinion, would that have made for a stronger picture or would that have led the witness, so to speak? Um, because to I, me, I, you know, I, I don't think I don't think it was necessary for well, me because th- of like it it makes it more universal that way. And OK, and that that's fair enough to me. It's one of those things. Maybe you're not giving the full story. They don't necessarily have to make a moral pronouncement about mm-hmm. the mining company leaving, but just mentioning it. But it's I, I think it's, you know, it, it's this intimate portrait that is universally like there, this is not the only town where this sort of thing is happening. Mm -hmm. And so it, by not giving it all of that detail and, you know, which, which you could argue is just exposition for backstory and that sort of thing. It, for me made it more, um, you know, universally relatable. It, it made me think about, um, I, I mentioned this to you a couple days ago and, um, you couldn't, you, barely knew what I was talking about. And I couldn't, I looked for it and couldn't find it. But there was, when we were in college, we met in college in a documentary class, mm-hmm. ironically. Um, and our professor had shown us this documentary. I, I want to say it was made in like the eighties about like people living in like the Appalachian mountains. And um, I can remember watching that in class and seeing, you know, people using wood burning stoves and, and all of these things and just being like, amazed to see that to get a glimpse inside a home yeah a level of poverty that we're not even really aware of yeah and and this felt like this reminded me of that in a lot of ways i mean just giving it a face at all was i mean i think what the point was to me um and then and then you have you know these real you know these these kids who you really i i think you've got to have something wrong with you if you don't root for them well and to your point about this being in every town USA, when you do not mention the mining company, without getting too political, because how you interpret this movie is inevitably going to be a consequence of your political and philosophical views, I'm sure. But by not mentioning the mining company, it almost inevitably brings up the conversation of, oh, well, maybe it's just their parents. Because you mentioned the father, as uh, Andrew's father is how he's kind of a ne'er do well and a bit of a wanderlust who just happened to have kids. And so he's on his journey of uh, endless discovery, but at the same time he has to take care of kids while he's doing it. So do you think that by not mentioning the mining company, it's, it, it invites the audience to maybe go after the parents more than they would otherwise? Um, I, I didn't feel that. And I, I think you could definitely like, I mean, from, from my perspective, it's not the parents. It's, I, I think you, you could definitely, the argument could definitely be made. I mean, like Apache's mother, there are times when, um, you know, she's got, she's got several kids and she'll just be, 
kind of laying on laying on the couch, laying on a bed, smoking a cigarette in the house. Like there's things that it's with young, young kids. Running yeah. Around. And though, as far as we know, she's working. Yeah. She's. I, yeah. She I has think, a job. But I think she it seemed like she was maybe a Pizza Hut delivery driver. Yeah, So she has a job, but she's it's not anything that, you know, she's yeah. going to get rich doing. Yeah. No. But there. I, I think. I don't know, man. It's it's tough. Like for me, I I had those thoughts like. I mean, just seeing Apache smoking, you know, this there's a scene um, where I think it's when we're first introduced to him, he comes in and he puts a cigarette in a toaster oven and uh, starts like lights it with a toaster oven. And, you know, he smoked, I think, well, he, him and Harley both smoked throughout. And and so like those things allowing that like felt like bad parenting. Yes. But I don't think like. I didn't feel you could put the blame on the parents for the situation. Well, and, and, and even maybe saying the parents, maybe it's just an endless domino effect because Harley, without, you know, getting into spoilers per se, what happened to Harley is just absolutely uh, heinous. It's it's just horrifying. And you can't well, really and, and not to be political, but I don't feel like you can blame the the community necessarily for that. It was his mother made a poor decision and that poor decision escalated. And then mm-hmm. that turned into another poor decision, which she made that. She almost had to make. Yeah. But the consequence well, of that was uh, was disastrous for him and for her. So it's it's difficult to it's just it, it's a, like I said, it's a very difficult film in that you cannot be deliberately. You cannot point the blame, blame anyone per se. You yeah. cannot blame no, the company. It, you cannot blame the city. You cannot blame the parents. And, and it's so, not be, by being apolitical. It's not trying to do that. You know, right. It's, it's trying to just give you give you this portrait. And, and, this and, and so once again, and, what I, I think what I like about it is what I dislike about it as a movie is it didn't uh, engage me or make me f- argue against it. But mm-hmm. what I appreciated about it is it like a, a document mm-hmm. is that it's something that you watch and then you have to discuss to see how someone else took it and how yeah. someone else interpreted well, it. Well, what did you so you mentioned Harley's sort of I guess his his arc. I mean, he's probably the one that has the strongest arc of of all three kids as far as like an actual kind of things escalate. Um, mm-hmm. more and more. Um, what did you think about the way that kind of unfolded? Um, From a cinematic perspective? Well, just, I, I mean, just as a viewer, just as like, I mean, when, well, I know that, that when he goes that moment when he's trick or treating and they're walking down the street and um, he's, you know, he's kind of said some things leading up to this. He's just hinted at, yeah. at stuff. And then, and then he just like, Let's it all go. Exactly. And well, and, it's and been, if that were something were to happen to me, I'm sure that I would just be absolutely I would be in therapy mm-hmm. if, or worse. You know, I would be in a ditch somewhere sucking my thumb. And he he's very world weary. He's very cynical. He's nihilistic. But at the same time, he seems to be semi he he's buried it so to speak yeah. he's not he's not he's not functioning well, it, per se, but he's buried it so much that you would never but know. But at the same time, it informs so much of. His anger. Well, and just who he is and what, you know, you get that scene early on where he goes to the pawn shop and you you think he's going to buy the knife. And then you realize, like, he, he's looking at all these, like, crazy looking mm-hmm. uh, knives that don't even look like they're very functional. You know, they've got, like, yeah, knives. Yeah, like dragon knives tail and, knives and yeah. Yeah, but... Um, you know, it, those sorts of things at first, it just feels like, oh, this kid's maybe got some anger issues and got some and a fascination with sharp weapons. Or is, you know, like that kid we all know. You yeah. Know, we all yeah, know. I, we all I know. A gun. Everybody I, knows a gun and knife kid. Yeah. 
Exactly. But like to see how that's actually directly informed by these events and then beyond that. So you've, you've got that. And then you've got the situation with his mother, which is just the, you know, I I don't want to say cherry on top because it's, it's a terrible Mm -hmm. situation, but you know, it just adds on top of all of the calamity that's already been kind of laid out. And, and that's, I mean, that's, that's the thing that I, I liked about this film is the way it destroyed me really. And, and the fact that they were able to capture this story and, and present it in a way that was just, it didn't feel like it was trying to twist your arm or pull strings or do anything. It was just, just showing it to you. And, um, well, that, that was really powerful to me. No, no, absolutely. And, and to their credit, Whenever you watch this and then explain it afterwards, you're inevitably going to have to show your cards, mm-hmm. how you how you feel about this, not just this film, but this situation, this yeah. environment. And had they had they given their political opinions, that wouldn't have happened. You mm-hmm. would have been arguing against their interpretation. Whereas this, you have to come to the you have to come to the film with something and have to have an interpretation of your own. And so that was very uh very thoughtful of them. Yeah, is to not not give their own opinions, but rather invite the audience to provide theirs Mm -hmm. and even you know with a kid like i we haven't really talked about apache like i think he has the least like not to say he has the least problems or whatever but he has the you know he's he to me he just felt like like i could identify with not personally identify but i knew that kid Mm -hmm. you know he was just sort of the he was the kid who had like a lot of symptoms with uh, a's and d's and things like and, and h's yeah no that's that's probably that's probably accurate but i was just gonna say you know he he had sort of this uh um personality that i you know i recognize that that kid the the scene where that seems like it's nothing but it's really like it felt like it really painted him for me there, there's two two particular moments when he's breaking the ice with that skateboard like it, it just felt like uh I'm going to destroy things. Just and I didn't. Yeah. Well, and to, to kind of play with it and see, you know, it's not it's not so much destruction as it is just like what happens when when I do this, you know, and then the uh, the moment when he's talking about like I think I might move to China. I think about moving to China and becoming an art teacher because paintings and stuff from China are freaking awesome. I get to sit there and draw dragons all day. That's that's a line that I think uh, would actually be an interesting litmus test, because I'm sure there are some people who who watched that and saw it and were like, oh, just laughed at the kid, you know, sort of like a lot of Errol, Errol Morris's early stuff, um, like uh, Gates of. Have you seen Gates of Heaven or Vernon, Florida or uh, I've uh, actually only seen the because, again, to my I only watch documentaries, but if the subject interests me, I've seen the uh, Donald Rumsfeld one and then the Robert McNamara, okay. Errol Morris. And so that probably belongs on my uh, personal war crimes list because there's there's moments in particularly in Vernon, Florida, I think, where he got a lot of and still gets a lot of flack from people who say, well, you're just you're just showing these people uh, to exploit them. Um, there's one scene in particular that I'd. Uh, somebody has some sort of animal and they're calling it something else. Like they're calling it, maybe it's raccoons or chickens or something. I, I can't remember. It's been a while, but they're calling it something else. And he doesn't contextualize like, well, in this region, they are called this thing. This person's not just stupid. And so, um, you know, I, I've read several debates on like, well, that's proof that he's, uh, he's just being an a-hole 
and exploiting these people. And then, you know, the retort is, well, no, maybe he's just showing us what they and and without that context. Yes, I understand. Like, it's it's difficult to like I had to Google it and look it up to figure out what was really going on. Um, so maybe, yeah, maybe this does with this uh, style of presentation falls, you know, to that. Uh, but I think for me, it it worked in um, really making it more compelling in all the right ways um, between, you know, between the lack of narration, the the score, which we haven't talked about. But I really I mean, that that was sort of the thing that early on really helped inform me because it felt very uh, antithetical to what you're seeing. It's this very beautiful, flowy um sort of drony score, very optimistic score. Um, and so to hear that with the juxtaposition of some of these locations and whatnot um, was really kind of a, almost a zinny, like puts you at, in a comfort in like, okay, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not looking at these people with condescension. Um, okay. So I think it's pretty safe to say that you enjoyed Rich Hill and the way it told its story. Would you like this style of, uh, absent narrator to be present in other documentaries? Um, I mean, I, I think it is. And I mean, the, the Errol Morris documentaries for, for instance, like, uh, like gates of heaven. I mean, there's, there's a few moments there that I think about a lot actually, where he just, he just listens and he just lets someone talk and, doesn't direct them in any sort of well sort of place. would you like to I, see it applied to more politically themed I, documentaries? I don't, I don't know if you can i mean i think for a politically themed documentary you need a voice well so you don't um, think that this was politically themed then you think that uh, not i i don't think that was the intention i really don't like i mean compare it to something like you you haven't seen uh the act of killing have you yes i have yeah you have okay mm-hmm. the you know the act of killing like you don't get um, you don't get a whole lot of narration there, but you do get that breaking of the wall, mm-hmm. um, that I think is important to, um, you know, once again, another, another film that's almost entirely about humanity, um, or and, lack thereof or, or lack thereof. Yeah. But, um, you know, the way he, you know, it, it keeps it from just being painted a black and white, like good guys or villains sort of thing. Like he, he shows, um, sort of how these people could have possibly done the atrocious things that they did. But there is still that level of, you know, people will be directly addressing him, uh, Josh, blah, 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 blah. So there, there feels like there's, you're almost, um, you're almost in his shoes. And I, I didn't feel like that here, here. It just feels like you're, uh, it's more verite just well. And yeah, and to that point, I cannot recall any documentary I've ever seen wherever there, there was less presence mm-hmm. from the filmmaker. Yeah. Because it doesn't even feel like, I mean, it, it doesn't, f- because you don't have just like set up, you don't have talking heads. You don't have any of that. Um, and actually that this might be a great way to close that, uh, moment at the very end where, Harley finally like they they just add a clip. It may have been after the credits. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't think um, I'm after okay. the credits. Yeah, they, they marveled it. Uh, yeah, they marveled it. No, there's there's just a little scene. I mean, it doesn't really do anything, but um, it shows Harley actually talking to both of them, um, and he's trying to get uh, he's trying to get Andrew to laugh basically. 
Um, and so like they finally break that, uh, that fourth wall at the end and, and show that like, you know, we, it wasn't just, you know, a floating camera. Uh, but you know, I, I just, I love the restraint. Um, I, I thought it allowed us to engage and really get immersed in a way that we probably wouldn't have been able to otherwise. And, uh, I agree with pretty much everything you've said. Um, so that's, that's the thing about my reaction to the movie is, is, as you said at the beginning is, it's just not my cup of tea. I enjoyed it. I will absolutely recommend it unequivocally. Um, however, it wasn't. It's not what I want from a documentary. Perhaps I enjoy more sensationalism or more involvement from the narrator. Mm-hmm. But I, I would absolutely recommend this picture. And then you know, react to it the way in which you feel necessary because the filmmakers didn't manipulate you. Yeah, how, I, I how, mean, it, it sounds like maybe you're saying it's a it's a one timer. It's it's worth seeing, and then you know, having an experience and putting on the shelf. Um, and then my, my recommendation would be watch this movie, you know, every six months, like just to get connected back with your, your humanity. And when you are watching this every six months in order to get connected to your humanity, what would you be drinking? I don't have so much a direct connection here. This is just a beer that I'm really excited about and really enjoy and want to recommend. And I think, um, it was, it was surprisingly amazing. Um, the first time I tried it. And so I think have a surprisingly amazing beer and watch a surprisingly amazing documentary. Uh, this is Prairie Weiss by Prairie Artisan Ales. Um, they're from Tulsa, Oklahoma. So another local brewery right in our backyard. And technically it's classified as a Berliner Weiss. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but they call it a sour wheat beer. Sour beers are a substyle of beer that I've really been enjoying over the past couple of years. Prairie's been releasing uh, them pretty regularly, um, for the past few years. And this is by far the best one that they've, they've put out in my opinion. Um, it's, it's light and sour and delicious, and it'll actually give your cheeks a little bit of a pucker, you know, sort of like a, uh, I don't know, sour patch kids or sour candy, you know, um, whether you love sour beers, you've been too afraid to try them or you've never even heard of them. I highly recommend this one. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Pick it up wherever fine craft beers are sold. That's Prairie Weiss. So while you are watching this documentary about impoverished children in Missouri, your cheeks will be puckered, which will be a nice dynamism. What would you recommend drinking after the fact? Presuming you're depressed, I would I would say Jack Daniels would probably be a good drink after you watch Rich Hill. You know, I I would say water. I would say, I mean, I was, because I was a little exhausted at the end, like emotionally exhausted. Um, you, you don't need to be bringing inebriates in, into that. You're Just, emotionally dehydrated. Yeah. So you needed to replenish yeah. a, a good, a good eight ounce glass of water. Well, so there you have it. Grab your prayer weiss and have your eight ounce glass of water ready to go. Whenever you stream rich Hill, which is now available on Netflix. And after the fact, please tell us what you thought of it at hello at war starts at midnight.com. Or if you prefer communication the way our parents did way back in the 20th century, Give us a call on our brand new War Starts at Midnight hotline. That's right, folks. Just last week, we furnished the secret bunker we broadcast from with a bright red telephone. So give it a ring at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4-CINEMA. That sounds very familiar. That used to be a sex hotline. Never mind. Uh, please, We got it cheap. Yeah, we got it cheap, I imagine so. Well, please stick around for our special feature segment whenever we discuss documentaries. Now promises made and debts were paid We tell ourselves we are not afraid Fear only goes where it's invited to stay 
interest Trying to understand the lonely heart of man To say that we are going to talk about documentaries would be a lot like saying we're going to talk about movies. It's such a broad subject that it could be an entire podcast. So rather than try and dissect the entire genre or the history of it, Chris and I are going to compare our different taste profiles in documentaries. Our palettes, if you will. Yes, unless, of course, you'd rather talk about Star Wars. That's an option that's available to us right now as well. You know, Hunter... I don't. That's another podcast as well. That's, okay, so that's its own. fine. We will try. We will try and stay. Uh, we will try and stay within this star system, as it were. If you're good, we'll talk about Star Wars later. I hope so. <laughs> if I behave myself, we'll get. It's kind of like getting eight hundred dollars to go to Walmart, which I would just <laughs> spend on Star Wars toys. But in any event, Chris, how would you describe yourself as a documentary watcher? You know, I would love to say that uh, I am an avid documentary viewer and. Uh, I think maybe in your mind I am, but you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that, uh, I, I need to see like, but, but I do, I love, I love documentaries because like you said, they're not, it's not a genre, you know, it's as vast as movies themselves. I mean, and there's just so many interesting ways to, uh, to attempt to tell a true life story. Yeah. You could almost say that cinema went in two different directions, documentary and, narrative Mm -hmm. even though documentaries there's a lot of documentaries that almost have a narrative quality to them like we talked about a second ago with hoop dreams i mean that's a narrative yeah well and there's also a a narrative you know sort of the duplass brothers for example uh i think crib very heavily or or uh more used to crib very heavily on documentary style and uh in in their uh, you know, fiction films. Well, actually, not just them. I mean, I think that that is very much it. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I was just as, as an example. I mean, they always they always come to mind for me because uh, I, I heard this interview with Mark Duplass a few years ago. That's always stuck with me. He described you know documentaries as a huge influence on them, and which is very obvious. But I hadn't really thought about it. But the thing that he described that he loves about documentaries, um, I found really interesting, and, and like it, it was great. It was. Um, he, he loves the moments when the big things happen because generally when the big things happen, either the camera's not rolling or the camera's in the wrong spot. And so it's the antithesis of what you typically get in your standard feature length fiction film where they will spend 24 hours trying to get the perfect thing. It builds up to this, like it just happens. And then you're almost in the aftermath before you even know what's going on. And then you're, you're kind of retracing steps and that sort of thing. Um, and, and I think that is something that's, it's really nice and really like, um, you know, something that you don't get, or at least you didn't get until someone, you know, broke it down and realized, um, you know, from anything, but a real life sort of scenario, because you know, naturally you're not going to want to say, Oh, the biggest thing possible happened. And we didn't show it. Yeah. And it was in the background. On the flip side, though, that w- that doesn't mean that a documentarian cannot manipulate footage, cannot edit footage, or cannot Ab- manipulate a scenario. So, absolutely not. I mean, somebody a perfect example of that actually would be. Have you been reading my notes? No, I'm reading your mind. Okay. I'm using the force to read your um, mind because I actually in in notes that I didn't share with you, I actually had uh, going from that to uh, Michael Moore's Bowling for Columbine. 
Um, you said you've watched most of his. Films. I think I've seen all of it. Yeah. Okay. Except for his show. Um, there's, there's several things in Bowling for Columbine that are, uh, very sort of manipulative of the audience and too perfectly sort of aligning. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that I always bring up anytime, uh, I am belittling because Michael Moore is one of those guys. I don't necessarily always disagree with his point of view, but I always disagree with the way that he presents it or nearly always disagree with the way he presents it. He turned and, me off whenever I saw him wearing an OU hat. I thought <laughs> you phony son of a bitch. Uh, but his, um, in, in bowling for Columbine, he has that, uh, interview with Charlton Heston, right? He basically gets his way into Charlton Heston's home by saying, Hey, I've been a member of the NRA since I was eight or whatever. Uh, let me come and interview you. And then he, uh, comes and they do a little bit of chit chat. And then, uh, he basically tries to pin the murder or the death, not the murder, the death of a girl on Heston and his involvement with the NRA, you know, not indirectly essentially, but saying you're associated with the NRA. Um, they promote, you know, guns and, uh, whatnot. Trouble Heston is, you know, tries to be as cordial as he can and then finally gets fed up and gets up and leaves. So he, he gets up, leaves, walks out, uh, walks out of the room, walks like down a corridor or whatever. Michael Moore comes after him and, and he's like, Mr. Heston, Mr. Heston, please, please just look at this, this photo of the girl. Please just look at the photo of the girl. And it's this kind of two shot back and forth that even as, you know, I, I think I first saw this in high school and I had just begun sort of, you know, working in editing and whatnot, but I knew just in like the way that you have to, you know, get a setup, shoot one way and then set up and shoot another way. Um, that sort of thing. Like there's no way, first of all, the, the interview was shot in, uh, both of them in frame. So single camera. And then, um, you, you suddenly go to like, uh, just showing Charlton Heston from what's basically Michael Moore's point of view, and then showing the absolute 180 reverse of Michael Moore holding up this photo and saying, look at this. So Michael Moore actually said, like he, I'm sure he said, look at the photo, look at the photo. But then he said, okay, cameraman, get in front of me. And I'm just going to say a whole bunch of stuff. And then, you know, we'll figure out in the cutting room what I actually want to use. Well, I I admire Clint Eastwood's reaction to that as they asked him what he would do if Michael Moore came to his home and he said he'd pull out a gun. (laughs) And that's a moment that I would actually like to be captured in documentary form, whether it's in the background or not. Um, So... Let, let let me put it this way. Even though you're not as avid a document documentary watcher as you say you are, would you say that you would watch something even if you're not all that interested in the subject or you think you're not? Um, if I have a strong recommendation, yes. Okay, so it's based on the recommendation. Yeah, I mean, that's that's generally like if, if I have no interest in it, but I've heard that it's good, I'll give it a whirl. What about, I mean, I, this is kind of a yeah, leading I, question. What about you? I mean, see, I, I would, think we know I'm the I'm not answer. going to say I'm the polar opposite because I wouldn't have watched... Uh, Harmontown or the act of killing necessarily on my own, even despite the fact that they're both critically acclaimed absent your recommendation on the flip side, though, if something's been nominated for an Academy Award and it's about some it's about, you know, ballet dancers. Mm-hmm. And even though it's supposed to be a brilliant documentary, I if I do not care about that. I would rather just watch a History Channel special on the Bigfoot <laughs> on Bigfoot. That is the kind of documentary I'd rather watch instead of this thing about. Uh, Why do you think that is, though? What is it about like. I mean, because for me, the thing that I really enjoy about the the subjects that I that I'm not interested in, that I know nothing about is the that perspective. Um, I think it. I don't think it's anything more than whenever I'm usually watching a documentary, it's at night. 
Okay. And so I'm not in necessarily in a mood to uh-huh. discover more about ballerinas per se. Okay. Well, okay. I'm, I'm, I would rather learn about uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex, mm-hmm. which that those are my favorite documentaries. If you're in case you were wondering, are dinosaur documentaries. <laughs> That's that is my cup of tea. What What about uh, the documentary that uh, Terrence Malick is currently working on? That is literally the entire scope of the universe is the subject. That's it. Just the scope of the universe. The I'm, I'm the surprised universe. that it, that he wouldn't make it even bigger than, than the scope of the universe. Don't worry. He's shooting it with IMAX cameras and there's going to be two versions. One will be narrated by Kate Blanchett. The other narrated by Brad Pitt. You know, I'll tell you what, given that it's Terrence Malick, it's going to have dinosaurs in it. Exactly. That's, much that, like that, that the tree my... of life, much like the tree of life. So I'm very excited about that. So like documentary. a twelfth of that movie you will it, be. Yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll be it'll be it'll have nude Rachel McAdams and dinosaurs. So I'm <laughs> there. Yeah, wasn't in uh, that Ben Affleck one. Is she? I don't remember. I don't remember that part. Um, anyway, moving on. Yeah. Um, so, I I mean, is that, I guess for me, I, you know, I also like just how how abundant they are, you know? So you've got your like superstar documentarian thing, like I, I mentioned earlier, uh, which would be, you know, your Michael Moore, your Morgan Spurlock. And then you've got sort of topical docs, which are about an event or about, um, you know, like Citizen Four or, or that sort of thing. Um, or if you define it as broadly as I do, it could even be, you know, History Channel and Discovery Channel specials. Yeah, perhaps. And in many ways, I think those are the ones that appeal to me the most. But then you've got, so then you get into, you know, you've also got like your social justice stuff, like like the act of killing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got like Errol Morris, who's a, an oddball. Like um, he he's done a lot of stuff. Um, and it's not all in one box. Um, he's almost a collector of oddity. He, he likes interesting, but bizarre people for the most part and, and not exclusively, but, uh, that, that takes him in, you know, to a lot of disparate, um, subjects. Uh, and, and then you've got someone like Werner Herzog, who is just sort of... Is an oddity. You have Meryl Morris, who f- finds oddities, and then Werner Herzog, who is an oddity with a camera. You know, it's actually funny you should say that, and maybe I led you into it, but do you know the story of Werner Herzog eats his shoe? I think I've heard this before, but why don't you tell it for our audience? Okay, so uh, there is this short film out there called Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe, uh, shot and directed by, I can't think of the guy's name now, it's a guy that did Burden of Dreams, the making of documentary of Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo. Um, if I remember correctly, but basically Werner Herzog and Errol Morris, uh, met up and they were buddies and Errol Morris wanted to get started in making documentary films, but, uh, he had some false starts. And so as a basically way to try to force him into actually doing it, uh, Werner Herzog said, you complete your first documentary and I will eat my own shoe. And he did. I mean, he like, he, he boiled it with. Uh, you know, some nice herbs and uh, and everything and, and chopped it up on stage in front of a live audience and, and ate his boot. You know, I'm sure I've eaten worse things at Applebee's than <laughs> Werner Herzog's shoe. Well, it, I mean, the way that he, he goes over everything that he's done to prepare and it, you know, for as far as, you know, a a tanned leather boot, uh, probably the tastiest tanned leather boot there ever was. I'm sure it was. Speaking of Werner Herzog, he was in it. He didn't direct, but he starred in a documentary. I think it was called An Incident at Loch Ness, which was a fake documentary about them finding the Loch Ness monster. Where do you think something like that would fall into? Not even it's not even a mockumentary. It's a fake documentary. Yeah, I mean, it's um, and not to I don't want to spoil anything for those who haven't seen. It. Have you seen yes. Incident at Loch Ness? Or- no, 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 not Incident at Loch Ness. Um, but uh Er, uh, gosh, Orson Welles. Um, yes. F for fake. F for fake. 
Um, I mean, I, I think I would put it in the same category as F for fake in like sort of, I don't know, like, but that's the thing that I love about documentary. Like you can't nail it down to, to one thing. It, it probably belongs in documentary from a, a ecstatic truth, which is a Werner Herzog term of like the, the ecstatic truth is not the, uh, true false, but the emotion or the, you know, what you, what compels you to arrive at a feeling that is the truth. Um, and I think he, you know, may argue, I mean, having been in, in incident Loch Ness, you know, being a willing participant, uh, he probably sees it as something sort of kind of, but then isn't that just a movie? Isn't that just a regular narrative movie of trying to get at a truth by using something that may be fictional? Yeah. I mean, that's the, the whole ecstatic truth thing is a little bit of a oddball. Like, I mean, it it kind of, it's a snake eating its own tail. Because that's the thing is I was getting ready to, I mean, I'll throw this out to you. I don't think I can find a documentary because I hadn't even really considered documentaries until we started talking, but would a mockumentary not be a documentary? I mean, I, I think it depends on where the lines are. I mean, what about something like catfish? Have you seen Catfish? I have not. Okay. But I'm I'm talking like a, like a Christopher Guest thing. Is right. That no, I, I don't think I don't think that is because that's uh, I mean, it has so elements. It's not just sure. a, it's not just a style. It's, it's it, a, no, I don't I don't think so. I think and, and there is I think there's a blurry line that can't be, you know, you can you can be on or around the line and, and you know, it's debatable, but it is and it isn't basically, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, but that, that's the thing that I kind of love is like like something like I wish I wish you had seen Catfish because that's actually a perfect sort of like. It is and isn't sort of scenario. I'm, I'm sure, you know, do you know the at least the premise of it? OK, um, well, we'll save that for another day. But it, it's very much like it doesn't even at the end of the day, it doesn't even matter if what is presented is the absolute truth, because uh, there's some so many other things going on that uh, it, it provides a just a interesting talking piece, if nothing else, you know, something to, to digest with your friends afterwards. All right. Well, I think you and I have thoroughly digested this topic insofar as the different type of documentary viewers we are. But what we'd really like to know is what kind of documentary viewer are you? So if you could please let us know once again, that's hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Stick around for our really rad recommendations coming up next. Right on. It all seemed pretty plausible, but it became impossible. The promises you made and you got betrayed and all the things that you still don't know at the end of the day. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. All right. Trying to make sense of it all tonight. Oh, no. Well, Hunter, we've reached the end of another show. We've talked a lot about documentaries, and we're at recommendation time now. What are you going to recommend? You got a doc for us? Actually, it straddles the line between documentary and fiction. It is Peter Jackson's 1995 Forgotten Silver. Forgotten Silver is about a fictional filmmaker from the 1910s who, in this documentary, apparently invented all the modern filmic techniques which we know and enjoy. And, of course, it's not real. But it's played in such a way that it feels real. And it's a, it's a very funny movie if you go in, you know, knowing better. But if you don't know better, then you would think that it's absolutely true. And so that just speaks to Peter Jackson's it, uh, ability. It's like the War of the Worlds of documentaries. Basically, yeah, except I don't think anyone killed killed themselves over it. But I, I could be wrong. Maybe you can watch it and kill yourself over it. However, before you do it, you're going to have to spend about 
$58 on Amazon.com for a DVD. Because the, the current going price. For the current going price. I'm actually kind of surprised, given his uh, notoriety and popularity, that this isn't out on a better version. Maybe, maybe it's in distribution hell. Maybe it's one of those. I have just... no idea. But if you want to see it, it's going to set you back a few. Yeah. But that is Forgotten Silver from 1995. All right. Well, uh, my recommendation is also a documentary, uh, a little more straightforward. It's uh, 1988's The Thin Blue Line by Errol Morris. And this is a Morris picture that I didn't mention in in the last uh, segment, but um, maybe one of his most well-known. It's about a man named Randall Dale Adams, who was on death row for the murder of a police officer uh, in the late 1970s. And this documentary actually got him off of death row. Um, He was wrongly accused. And Errol Morris uses, you know, we were talking about documentary can be anything and do anything. Uh, Morris kind of uses these reenactments of um, the people that he's interviewing. So each person will say, this is how it happened. And he reenacts the, uh, the death, the murder of the uh, police officer. And by juxtaposing them, you know, all together um, creates a pretty compelling and obvious, like the evidence that Randall Dale Adams is convicted on is totally bogus. And actually like the main witness for the prosecution, uh, David Harris is the the man who did it. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty clear and cut and dry. I, I don't think it's even really debatable. But you know, the uh, after the film's release, um, Randall Adams got off, got out of uh, got out of prison. So it was uh, you know pretty pretty compelling filmmaking for the time. Still, I think a very compelling and interesting, energetic. Uh, sort of documentary, you know, er- Errol Morris, if nothing else, is always sort of doing interesting, inventive things uh, with with his work, and uh, you know, in in using the reenactments, you know, I don't know how you feel about reenactments and documentaries. I think it it can be a little cheesy sometimes, but he's actually, I think, using that cheesy element to make a point. Um, so that's uh, Errol Morris's 1988, The Thin Blue Line. Uh, to continue with my theme of recommendations, this actually just got released on what I've heard is a beautiful Criterion Collection Blu-ray. So uh, check it out there. It's also, I believe, streaming on Netflix right now. And actually, I'd like to double team my uh, recommendation because Forgotten Silver is so difficult to find. There's another document I'd recommend called Empire of Dreams. Empire of Dreams is, of course, the making of the entire Star Wars trilogy. And so I... that concludes another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr at WSAM Pod. If you like the show, help us out by rating it on iTunes. And if you hate the show or you have any comments, please email us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or you can now give us a call on that red telephone at 484-424-6362. Music in this week's show comes from Medicine by Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors. Find more of their music and tour dates at drewholcomb.com. Tune in next time when we will be discussing the summer blockbuster, The Avengers Age of Ultron. Thanks for listening. May the force be with you. It's definitely a sour beer. You know, sour sour beers are sort of a sub-style of beers that I have really been enjoying over the past couple of years. Um, Prairie's been putting... Michelob burps. <laughs> Find more of their music and tour dates at Drew Hocum... Drew Hocum... Drew Hocum...
Drew Hokum. Drew Hokum. Drew Hokum. Drew Hokum. Uh, it's it, now I don't. They're not even words. <laughs>